Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Um, If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 24 as we get started. Uh, Another photo that I was able to take, and just before we look at the message that will be on the PowerPoint, this is called Coral Island. It is also known as Etzion Gever, which was a fortress city of Solomon that was built on an island south of a lot. You know how Israel comes to a point and you've got Aqaba to the east in Jordan and you have a lot, the city in Israel in the south, and it's right on the Red Sea as it comes up. So when you stand at a lot here you're actually in Egyptian waters but if you go further north and you stand at a lot and you're looking south to your left is Jordan to your to the left like that way is Saudi Arabia and to the right is Egypt all right there, you know, coming together. A lot's an awesome place to be, especially if you're a 60s kind of person, uh, because it's just like that. You know, everyone's hanging out at the beach. Everyone takes their time. It's a whole different kind of world than the rest of the land of Israel. And as you can see, there's some really beautiful waters. Uh, We were able to do some snorkeling and some diving along here. That's a crusader castle that remains, and much of the Byzantine uh, remains are there. But the archaeologists found a all these remains underwater of a harbor that dates back to the time of of Solomon. And this was the southernmost portion of his kingdom and from which he had engaged in all of the trade that brought in great, uh, tremendous amount of goods to uh, the Jewish empire at that time. In fact, if you read 1 Kings chapter 9, you'll read of all the different things that were brought in to this place. Gold, silver, all different animals like monkeys is made reference to and other animals. We're also told that some of the ships that sailed here would go off for three years before coming back. So we now also know that some of the ships that Solomon sent out actually sailed out to Africa. Many believe the eastern coasts of Africa before making their way back. And this would have been the harbor where they would have unloaded all their stuff, put it onto whatever kind of donkeys, camels, whatever, and then brought it up uh, into, into Jerusalem. But it's a beautiful place, is it not? I mean, look how clear that water is. And um, that whole area is just, just beautiful. And the hills all around it 
uh, just neat. But I chose this because hopefully you'll be able to see the, the lettering on it. We're looking at the work of the Spirit of God in the life of, this isn't happening, Scott, in the life of, uh, as taught in the uh, teachings of Yeshua in the Passover discourse found in John chapters 14 through 16. And as we've been looking at what he has to say about the Spirit of God, we then moved into some of the works of the Spirit, how the Spirit of God operates, what are the ministries of the Spirit. We talked a little bit about the immersing work of the Spirit of God or the baptizing work of the Spirit. We talked a little bit about the filling of the Spirit. We're talking now about the fruit of the Spirit, which is to be manifested in the life of every believer because the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and therefore every believer possesses the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we possess the Holy Spirit, we, we, we also have the fruit of the Spirit of God within us as well. And so we want to talk, we talked about love last week. We want to talk about the fruit of the Spirit called joy. Now, keep in mind, all nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits plural of the Spirit. It's one fruit that has these nine different aspects. There isn't such a thing as, well, I'm working on love, but uh, I've got joy pretty good. You know, no, it's all there within you, every one of the fruit. Now, it may very well be that we need to allow some of this fruit to manifest itself, but it's there for the Spirit of God to make known through us. I love this passage in Luke chapter 24. So if you'll just turn with me there just very, very briefly, because this is Luke's account of Messiah's appearance to the two disciples on, who are on the road uh, to the village of Emmaus. And this past week, I was up in Santa Clarita. I had opportunity to share a little bit about the resurrection of Messiah. You know, there are 10 appearances recorded in the good news accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 10 appearances are made reference to of Messiah's uh, resurrection countenance. And if you look, for example, at chapter 24, verse 36, we're told that as they were talking about these things, that is, as the disciples who were walking away from Jerusalem and they were walking north or westerly in a western direction. Remember, Yeshua told all the disciples, head up to Galilee, go north, that's where I'll see you. It took them eight days to get there. It's normally a three-day journey if you're going slow, and they didn't get there for eight days. They just weren't listening, weren't responding. And two of his disciples went west. They didn't even stay in Jerusalem, they left. And so we're told that as they were talking, as Yeshua shows up, although they don't see him as such, and as they were talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem, Yeshua says to them, peace be unto you. They were startled and frightened, thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise uh, in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. This is after the disciples on the road to Emmaus come back to Jerusalem. They're so excited about what has transpired. They want to tell the disciples in Jerusalem. And he says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Here's an interesting verse. Listen to this. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? 
They gave a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. See what he says? And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Isn't that odd? It's an odd phrase, right? While they disbelieved because of the joy. And you know what this Greek phrase means to convey? It means to say that when Yeshua appeared to them, it was too good to be true is what the phrase means. They were so excited that Yeshua was there, it just can't be him, you know? And so that was the idea of that disbelieving in joy. It means it was just so good. Is this really so? And Yeshua wants to tell him it really is. In other words, give me something to eat and I'll show you. And then when you get to the end of this section, it says in verse 50, then he led them out. I love this section too. He led them out as far as Bethany. So Bethany is just a few miles from Jerusalem. And you say, well, why did he lead them to Bethany? Well, Bethany was the place where his closest friends lived. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And so where does he leave his earthly journey? The last place he stops is the home of his close friends, right? So he, le- he could have led them anywhere, right? He could have led them wherever he wanted to bring them. But he brings them to the village of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now watch this. It says that when they are there in Bethany, he lifts up his hands and he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And here's the neat thing. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So the thing I want to focus on is this thing called joy, this fruit of the spirit joy. You know, it was too joyful to be true. When they find out it is true, they experience such great joy that they can't restrain themselves, can't restrain themselves from worshiping God and from lifting up their voices in praise to him and then to tell others of what God has done. So what is this fruit? Some, by the way, have divided the nine fruit of the Spirit into three clusters, we'll call them. And by the way, I filled out, provided you with a little insert if you wanted to fill that out. But some have said, for example, love, joy, and peace has to do, although nobody says it only has to do, but if we're to attempt to try to organize the fruit of the Spirit and put them together, this is one way it has been done. I'm not certain it's right or wrong. It's just a thought, and it's kind of clever. Love, joy, and peace sort of speaks about our relationship to God. Yes, we love others, but we first love God because, or we love God because he first loved us, and that enables us to love others. We have a joy toward God, which enables us to have a joyful countenance. We have peace with God, and that enables us to have peace peace with one another and peace within ourselves. So perhaps there is a focus there. This idea of patience, kindness, and goodness seems to focus, some have said, on our relationship with others. We have to be patient with, well, with ourselves to be sure, but also patient with others. We have to exhibit kindness. Well, where do we show kindness? Well, to others. How do we manifest goodness? Well, with others. So maybe they're on to something here. And some speak about faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as like in Inward characteristics. Certainly being faithful means to have a certain perseverance, a certain determination, a certain endurance that will see our walk of faith to the end. That we'll be able to say, like Paul, I have finished the course, I have run the race, you know, and, uh, and there is now stored up for me 
a crown of glory in heaven. But this idea of being faithful and steadfast, this idea of being gentle, perhaps with ourselves, being self-controlled, to uh, refrain from allowing our emotions to take control of our actions. So these are just some thoughts. But joy in the scripture is repeatedly presented as something that comes from God. So, for example, when we read the book of Nehemiah, we find after Nehemiah builds the walls, one of the things that is discovered is the book of the law. Now they begin to read it before all the people. But because this is shortly after the exile, many people aren't understanding Hebrew. They're not understanding it. And so the Levites were spread out among the crowd. And as the Levites would read the words of God, there were Levites that were sort of translating it or explaining its meaning, we're told in this passage. And what happens after they hear the word of God for the first time in such a long time in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, they begin to be grieved because they hadn't heard it presented. They hadn't been obedient to it. They hadn't been living it because they hadn't really known it as they ought to have. And Nehemiah encourages them. And he says, look, don't be grieved over this for the joy, here it is, of the Lord is your strength. A joy that is sourced in God, a joy that comes from him. In John chapter 15, this is also an incredible phrase. Yeshua says, these things I've spoken to you, All these things throughout the course of his earthly ministry, but also particularly those things that he has just told them in the Passover discourse. He says, these things I've spoken to you, notice that my joy may be in you. So the fruit of the Spirit, joy, is the joy of the Spirit of God. It's the joy of Messiah. It's the joy of the Lord himself. He says that my joy might be in you, but notice this, and that your joy may be full. In other words, somehow the joy of Messiah has an impact on our own emotions to enable us to experience joy, which becomes our joy. The joy of the Lord becomes our joy as it energizes our own innermost being to rejoice in the things of God. So he says, look, I've spoken to you these things. That's why the word of God is so critical. The word of God can bring joy to our hearts because he tells us this is what will sort of ignite my own joy in you so that your joy may be its fullest. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says a similar thing. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So over and over again, and these are just a few verses, that joy in scripture is presented as that which comes from God. It isn't a human emotion as such. It is a manifestation of the character of God himself or the qualities of God's nature. And so therefore, but here is an interesting thing. He says, despite your affliction. And notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, despite some of your afflictions. He doesn't say, most of your afflictions. He says, because of the word in much affliction. So these believers in Thessalonica were individuals that suffered greatly. They were ongoingly challenged because of their faith and no doubt were ongoingly challenged to live out their faith. And despite the affliction, the much affliction, the intense affliction, the great afflictions they had experienced, they received the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that means to say that, first of all, joy and affliction, joy and suffering are compatible. 
One can suffer and yet have joy. That suffering does not have to take away or rob us of our joy, although more often than not, it certainly seems to, at least in my life. But what is joy? Well, first of all, it has to be distinguished from happiness because happiness focuses on the immediate circumstances of our life. Happiness focuses on that which is momentary, that which is circumstantial, that which is particularly experienced in a given moment. Joy runs deeper than both pain and pleasure. Joy is not merely happiness, it's deeper than happiness, and joy can be experienced despite the pain that we might have. It's a gift, we're told, from God, a fruit of the Spirit, which can be experienced and is oftentimes experienced during difficult circumstances. It is ultimately a quality of life, not merely a fleeting emotion doesn't mean that we always show it on our faces, but we certainly could. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes fail in this regard, but it does mean to say that joy is something deeper, greater, more pervasive than a mere momentary experience of happiness. And so it's an integral part of our whole relationship with God. So it's fullness, this fullness of joy is experienced when there's a deep sense of the presence of God in the midst of whatever it is we're suffering. You know, when I read of some of the martyrs who were told that they were going to go to their deaths for one reason or another, to read of how many of them said, let us go, let's do this thing now. They're ready to suffer for the Lord, even incredible torturous circumstances, because the joy of the Lord was deeper still. I don't know what more I can say about that. It would really be great to have some who have suffered in our own lifetime that we would just see something in their lives because of the depth of the suffering they have experienced. But it produces a feeling that if something is too good to be true. That's what we see in Luke chapter 24, right? He says, see my hands and my fish, that is I myself. And while they were still disbelieved for joy, It says it was just too good to be true and seen in this light suffering can actually produce joy and James tells us that he says count it all joy my brothers when you suffer various trials trials of all kinds is what the word the Greek word means trials of various kinds brought on by all kinds of different circumstances not any one or group of particular kinds of circumstances knowing that it will produce steadfastness. It will try our faith. But look what he says, count it all joy. Somehow in the midst of our trials and sufferings, we can count those things as a joyful thing because of what God will do through it. Sometimes we just don't believe God will actually work this out in our lives. Somehow we just don't believe that I really will be made more steadfast in my faith that I will become more like him through this, that I will become more holy through this. Somehow God has a positive thing. We just have a hard time believing what Paul says, all things work together for good to those who are called, to those who are being led into being conformed into the image of his son, Paul says in Romans 8. We just have a hard time believing that. Some do not, but some of us do. 
First Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as, as though something strange were happening to you. And certainly I, I must confess, that's how I oftentimes feel when struggling comes. I say, why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. What have I done to deserve this or to have brought this on myself? Peter's telling us we shouldn't be asking that question. Don't think this is something strange. That's not to say we do everything right. The fact of the matter is, the reason why we've been forgiven of our sin is because we do everything wrong. God has accepted us despite our limitations. We don't have to prove ourselves to God because all we will prove is that we need him. And he already knows that and we know that. There's nothing to prove to God. There's only something to receive from God, his grace in forgiveness. So I was talking with an individual somewhere down the road. I'll be performing a wedding service. And I asked this couple to see uh, some counseling. And there were some issues in their lives which was brought to the surface and which they were now confessing as sin. And so they felt, as I was talking to the fellow that was counseling them, they were feeling really uh, badly about what had transpired. And he reminded them, when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. That's what God does. He's not looking for us to be, co- to be perfect in coming to him. He's looking for us to come to him and he will perfect us over time in his own way. And so don't think these fiery trials are something strange. They are to test us. Not to test us to see what's in us, but rather to prove what is already in us. That we have the work of the spirit of God. And so he says, but rejoice. In that you share Messiah's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Messiah, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And Messiah himself is a great example of this. Now, I just want to talk about this in one sort of way. There are different ways we could look at it. But Messiah is called the man of sorrows. That's a common phrase that Individuals speak of him, but Isaiah 53 says a man of sorrows, familiar with uh, our sin and our limitations. But the phrase man of sorrows does not mean he was a sorrowful person. When it says that he was a man of sorrows, and there's difference of agreement, but I suspect what he means is he bore our sin. The sorrows that he is a man of is our sin. It doesn't mean that he was sorrowful or that he was someone who was depressed, a man of sorrows. There were certainly times of sadness when, for example, Lazarus was dead and he wept because he loved Lazarus. And there's more complications and more involved than merely that. But the point is, as a man of sorrows, it's talking about the objective afflictions that he bore in taking upon himself our sin. It does not mean speak of the internal distresses that he may or may not have experienced. Because if there is anything we are to remember, Yeshua came into the world to destroy the works of the evil one. He came in not to be conquered, but to conquer. Now, in order to conquer, he had to suffer and die. But this he did willingly. He said, no man takes my life. I lay it down willingly. And on the cross, what led to his death was his own phrase, it is finished. 
and into thy hands I commend my spirit. No one took his life. He gave it freely and willingly. The crucifixion did not kill Messiah. It was the mechanism by which he was to fulfill scripture, shedding his blood. As scripture said, his hands and feet would be pierced in Zechariah, also Psalm 22. But what led to the end of his life was his own will to lay it down. He came not to be broken by sin and death, but to break sin and death itself. So that being the case, then, he came as a conqueror with joy knowing that what he was about to do would result in the salvation of many, of his own people Israel and the nations of the world. Because in you, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In Hebrews 2, it says, Look to Yeshua, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He went to suffering joyfully because that's why he came into the world. When he's a man of sorrows, it doesn't mean he was sorrowful. It means that he was a joyful man who willingly took upon himself our sorrows and our sin. He was a man who bore the sorrows of others. And so not only did Messiah rejoice in accomplishing the work of redemption, but he also equally rejoiced when salvation was experienced by others. If you look at Luke 10, in that same hour, Messiah rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He rejoiced in the fact that God opened the hearts of the little children, his disciples he's talking about, who who understood who Yeshua was. He rejoices in the salvation of others. Isn't that kind of interesting? He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeshua exhibited that reality. The word, by the way, translated rejoice, that's a Greek word, we don't need to go there. But it's a strong word that means exuberant gladness and gladness that fills the heart. It's a word that in the Septuagint, the Jewish translators of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, translated for one word that's translated as joy, gil, which is used most frequently in the Psalms. You know, we have the city of Gilgal, which means rolling, and it's outside of of, uh, Jericho. And you remember after the Battle of Jericho, they they landed at Gilgal, and then they fought at the Battle of uh, Jericho, and they were successful. Gilgal means rolling, and it has the idea of exuberant joyfulness that just keeps rolling and moving along. That's the word that's used here, that he rejoiced. He had an exuberant joy in the salvation of others. He also, Messiah's coming into the world, was, is filled with joy. Even though we don't read of him laughing, smiling, people somehow think that he was sour, that he was stern, that he was um, just not a happy, a happy man, I don't know. But what we find is everything about Messiah is encompassed in joy. For example, his, his announcement of his coming was with joy. The angel said, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. Well, if the announcement is of great joy, what is he announcing? He's, a joy, he's announcing the coming of Messiah, who is a joy. 
Not only that, but the word for great joy, that, by the way, the Greek word there is karan megalain. We get the word like mega from, megabyte and all that means much, great. And so it says that he will, it will be, it is good news of not just joy, but of great joy. And this Greek word is translated in the Septuagint with the word samach or simcha that we always get, which means joy. It's like a very common word in the Hebrew scriptures. And here it's being used that it was great joy. The message he proclaimed was a joyful message. It was the good news. It was great news. It was joyful news. We're told in John that John came neither eating nor drinking, but the Son of Man, Yeshua, he came, and he's eating and drinking. And they look at him and they say, what a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was a joyful man that participated in partying with the wrong crowd, the tax collectors and the sinners rather than the righteous ones. And so he, had, he was seen to be a joyful person. And so these different statements have been made. We speak of the man of sorrows, yet I think, this commentator said, I think the deepest note in the soul of Yeshua was not sorrow, but joy. If our Lord was the man of sorrows, he was more profoundly still the man of joy. And I love what this person wrote. Though a man of sorrow, he was even on earth anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Shall we wonder that there was divine gladness in the heart of him who came into the world, not by constraint, but willingly? Not with a burning sense of wrong, but with a grateful sense of high privilege that he had a blessed consciousness of fellowship with his father who sent him during the whole of his pilgrimage through the veil of tears. Certainly we can't imagine that there's no joy in this man who did what he did and Yeshua did what he did willingly without constraint. He wasn't forced. He did this out of an act of his own will and desire to save those that needed salvation. And so how can we imagine that he would have been sorrowful internally. He had to have been joyful. So how can we experience the fruit of the Spirit known as joy? First of all, let me suggest to you that we develop a relationship with the Lord. That's where it starts. What is your relationship with the Lord like? For some, maybe you have never entered into that relationship. You need to say, Lord, come into my life, take on my sin, be the man of sorrows for me, that you as a man of joy can be that for me as well. So it starts with a relationship with the Lord. Psalm 16 says, you make known, the Lord makes known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So if we need joy, we have to go to him. And if we're going to go to him, it means we have to have a relationship with him. It starts by accepting his son as Messiah, but it doesn't end there. Simply because we accept him as Messiah doesn't mean all of a sudden all these things will be a reality in our lives. We need to move forward from that point of decision to a point of yieldedness to the work of the Spirit in our lives. But we need to realize that in your presence there is fullness of joy. Secondly, he says, I'm suggesting that we ask the Lord for joy. On the one hand, we need to have a relationship with him, and we need to invite him into our lives, and we need to accept what he's provided for us, that we might have life and have it more abundantly, have it more joyfully, as well as in every other way. But Yeshua tells us, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what are we to ask for? We're to ask for his joy. 
We're to ask that joy would show up, that during the time of trials of much affliction, intense affliction, whatever it might be, in disturbances of one kind or another, disappointments that invade our lives, Lord, would you give us your joy, which would be our strength? Can you grant us the joy of your spirit that would enable me to go another day, another moment, another hour? Thirdly, we need to celebrate when God provides. In Psalm, it says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. Part of our problem, I think, is we focus attention on the affliction and the distress of our soul, and we don't celebrate the deliverances that God provides and has provided. Our focus is in the wrong place. It's not on God. It's in the world that has been difficult for us. Yeshua told us, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, be joyful, because I have overcome the world. We need to look to the overcomer, the conqueror, the one who can grant us joy in the midst of despair. Notice that none of these things says, I will take away the affliction. In none of these cases does it say, the way you will have joy is by somehow remedying the problem. That's not what joy is about. Joy is something that endures despite the problem. I'm not saying that the problem should not be addressed. Maybe it should be. But joy is not the result of a solved problem. Joy is the result of a close relationship with God. And so we are to, if we have a close relationship, we should be celebrating the things that God has done. It will only enable us and enhance our ability to experience that joy. And then Yeshua tells us the way to joy is to abide in Messiah. That is to follow him, to walk in his ways, to obey him, to celebrate his word. In John 15, it says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So joy comes By first of all, having a relationship. Second of all, by asking. Thirdly, by celebrating. And fourthly, by abiding in our Lord. We have to keep walking with him. We have to keep up with him. And we have to celebrate, I think that's the really key thing, what God has done that we would experience joy as joy is meant to be experienced. And lastly, let me suggest, based on what we read about in Yeshua, we need to share our faith. You know, I find as a, having more of a congregational leader, rabbi, pastor role, I am less involved in the community in which we live because so much of my time is focused on us, you know, and on ministering to us and being prepared to minister such as on a Shabbat morning or in whatever case of leadership that I have here. And so what is more difficult is engaging with the lost, because I engage you, who are for the most part not lost. But recently, there's been opportunities that I've had. And it only reminds me that when in those opportunities, not so so much as to win an argument, but simply to develop a relationship that exhibits the love of the Lord, it is really wonderful. And so my times meeting with Celia have been refreshing to my soul. Celia may feel how wonderful it was that I came and sat with her, talked to her, prayed for her, and I pray that that is so. 
But she doesn't understand what a joy she has been to me simply because of the opportunity for me to share the joy of my life with her. Recently, when we had our life group with the teens, there are a couple of young men there who are not believers, who are just... I mean, the first question after we watched the video was, what passage can you share that shows Yeshua is the Messiah? And that was it, you know? And then to talk about the Lord the rest of the night was just invigorating and exciting. I received a call from uh, Suzanne. I spoke with your friend. And... Uh, we will be meeting either this week or next week. And uh, her friend, who's a believer, uh, has a, a, a relationship with a man who is not a believer, per se. And he's very close, or at least that's what she had said to me. And so I'm going to have opportunity to sit down with him and share the love of Messiah. So these are like four things. It's almost like, you know, Lord, I ask, can you bring joy to my heart? You know, can you renew joy? And he sends me people to share him with. And then after I've shared with him, I leave there saying, wow, that was awesome. That was so much fun, you know. And it was just such a joyful thing and has been and continues to be. In Acts 15, I thought this was interesting. So being sent on their way by the believers, the congregation in Antioch of Syria, that congregation was formed after the persecution of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Many of them left. They go north into Syria. They formed this congregation. Barnabas was there, one of the leading lights. He's the one that brought Paul there. It was there that John Mark was there, and all the missionary journeys of Paul are launched from this congregation. And it says, so being sent on their way, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, as they come down the coast to come to Jerusalem. To describe, because there was a concern, Gentiles, man, are coming to faith. This is not right. There's something wrong with this. And so these individuals who have been engaged in leading non-Jews to faith are being sent to Jerusalem to tell them of their experiences. And in Acts chapter 15, there will be a conclusion. Well, uh, this is what God is doing, just like he's working among the Jews. And it says that they described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And look what happens. It brought great joy to all the brothers. So how can we go about joy? Well, first of all, we need to have a relationship. Number two, we need to be asking. We need to be thirdly celebrating. We need to be abiding in the Lord, following him moment by moment, staying up with him, following in his ways, obeying his commands. And we need to be engaging the world in which we live with the good news of Messiah. I guarantee you, if we do this, because it's the word of God, if we do this, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. And the joy of the Lord will be exceptionally evident in each one of our lives. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as I'm praying, the ushers can come forward. Father, as we have looked at your word, these are great things for us to reflect upon. And Lord, it is our desire, knowing that we go through such rough moments throughout our life, that there can be a joy that radiates within our hearts and radiates out from our hearts to those around us if we simply bask in your presence, rest in the truth of your word, find comfort in the reality of your indwelling presence, and rely upon your spirit who alone can provide us with such joy. 
Lord, it is before you that we must come. It is with you that we must have this kind of relationship. It is by you that we can only experience these things. And so we come, Lord, asking that you might renew the joy in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be celebrative as we reflect on all that you have done over the course of our lives in providing us and delivering us time and time again. Might you help us, Lord, as we seek to, ref- to obey your word and to live in light of its truths and to follow in step with you by abiding in you. And then, Lord, enable us to share the love you have for others to others, that they, Lord, would find you as Lord and Savior. All these things can serve to renew the joy of the Lord, which is of you. May it become more and more part of our lives, we pray, for we ask in Yeshua's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.